As they drained my control, it let out and made visible who I really was. Hmm. And who was that? An absolute control freak. The worst they had ever seen in 60 years. Welcome to The Impossible Man, the true story of how the inability to move allowed one person to trade his humanity for odds-defying superpowers, and how he clawed his way back. Hey everybody, and welcome to the final episode of The Impossible Man. The last episode was pretty rough, but that is par for the course before the hero learns the lesson and ascends from the darkness, and that's ultimately what we're going to be covering this episode. Remember, the entire arc for John was a journey basically from the need for control to trust and faith. And we're going to cover that in this episode. He needed to be safe, and this is how he attempted to get it. So let's begin with this final episode of The Impossible Man. All right, so when we last left off, you were in a very dark place. We heard the story of this brutal rape and what it did to both Hummingbird, your girlfriend, and to your relationship and then to you. So that's where we're starting this as we finish this overview of your story. So I assume that the relationship fell apart and you broke up and you were this broken person. Is that where we began? More or less, that's where. So even though she realized what she saw and experienced wasn't real, she still remembered it. And she still had the trauma from her not real experiences. She knew how illogical that was, but it doesn't matter. She experienced it. And that trauma caused her intense anxiety, even to be around me. This is a little like if somebody wakes up from a a, a bad dream and is mad at you because of something that happened in the dream, but it didn't actually happen, but that they still feel that way for a while. And it sounds like even if intellectually she understood, but she was having this emotional memory of you hunting down and killing the people that she loved. Is that correct? Yeah, her experiences where she saw me torture and kill people she loved, or to be more accurate, to order them tortured and killed. Did she go to therapy around that? Oh, yeah. Lots and lots of therapy. And she knew by the end of it, she had reached a point where she had made clear dividing lines about what was real, what wasn't. But all of that trauma was still with her. And she told me, I love you with every molecule in my body. But if I stay with you, I feel like I'm never going to heal. And I need to move on. You need to move on. I'm going to move and try to restart my career. And if you love me, you will never come looking for me. Wow. So throughout this story, you've been bulletproof and confident and sure that you could do any impossible thing that was put in front of you. How much of a hit did that take during this? It was the only time in my life that I couldn't get out of bed, that I didn't, I didn't want to work. I didn't want to see anyone. I wept all day, every day for months. I was completely broken. Yeah. And I started reaching out to a lot of girls. And even though I was a complete mess, not trying to date them, but just try to sleep with them. And in the span of three months, I probably slept with 12 girls. One of them was a porn star. I still had all of my old skills, except I now had no filter. I didn't do anything to harm any of those girls. I never lied to them. I told them 
I was not looking for a relationship. I was just looking for sex. And guys, it'll shock you. There are a lot of women out there that are totally okay with what they want is you to be honest about it. At the same time, it wasn't healthy at all. And eventually a mutual friend of ours, David Gonzalez, I was telling him about my life. And he just said, John, this isn't you, man. I'm assuming that you had some degree of that control tendency that had loosened up a little bit while you were with Hummingbird. Did it all come slamming back? Was there this almost vindicated feeling of, you know what, I was right all along. I shouldn't have relaxed my control. I should have tried to stay safe. Sleeping with other girls was about control because my objective was to sleep with them. And and I'm not saying this is good. I was in a dark time in my life. My objective was to sleep with them on the very first day. And so it was, how many girls can I sleep with on the very first day? And you applied, I assume, all the same sort of impossible strategies that you've had all along, that same force of will. To my credit, like I said, I was never dishonest. By the way, this is another secret to anyone, any kind of dating. Tell the other person exactly what you want. I would tell them on the very first day, this is exactly what I want. Are you down for that? And about third of the women said, no way. And that was the end of the day. The other two thirds of the women said, maybe let's keep talking. This is through like dating apps? No, this is in person. So you were still getting out because this was pandemic times, right? This was like 2020, 2021, something like that. It was right before it. So yeah, I was attempting to feel some sort of control by how many women could I get to sleep with me over the span of a few hours while being completely 100% honest. I would even tell them about Cummingbird. I wasn't hiding anything. Well, so control was a strategy for you to feel safe. So did you feel safe at all? No. Even though you were controlling everything, did you just keep trying to ramp up the control in an effort to feel that again? Yeah, I think there was some of that. I I was totally unaware at the time, but I would say yes. So David was the one who saw this. You were not going to see it on your own. Is that correct? At least not at this time. Yeah, he he came to me. He knew about the breakup and everything that had happened with Cummingbird, and he knew I was messed up. But then he started to see all of this, and he told me, rather than do what you're doing, yes, is it helping? And I said, no. He said, well, would you be open to a different approach? And I said, yes. So you didn't resist. You didn't tell him he was crazy, that he didn't know what he was talking about, any of that? No. And it's because he was a very close friend. He had already earned my trust. I knew he had my best interests at heart. And he said, there's a group, invitation-only group of guys who were all very successful who get together, and they talk about their problems. There are no therapists. It's just a group of guys. But it's a really cool group. Was it that simple? Was it literally just a group of guys just who just decided that they needed this uh, support network? What I learned when I went there is that that there's a movement among some men that have realized that men have become emotionally stunted and that it causes all sorts of problems in our lives. And there are groups around this, like Lionheart is one of those groups. I never went to Lionheart, but this is a very similar process. And the idea is that we've been through trauma learned all the wrong lessons, and now we can't 
seem to progress forward as men because we're no longer in control. The trauma is. So that idea of learning all the wrong lessons is something that we talked briefly about before. Can you give me an example of what that means to go through trauma and learn all the wrong lessons? Yeah. So after my stepfather, I learned if I'm not in charge, no one is safe. With Hummingbird, I think the lesson I learned was my life is over. It's time to die. Hmm. So you learned, you were learning that lesson subconsciously. And then when David came in, I assumed that there was some degree of, well, this person sees it differently and I trust him and he cares about me. Was there that kind of thing? Yeah. And he was asking me to go hang out with some guys. And he just said, try it and see what you think. And so I did. What did you think? I wept like a baby, told them the story. And each man in the group just gave me a hug. They didn't say anything. They didn't judge me. I did the same for them. And I noticed that I didn't feel alone. I still felt like shit, but I didn't feel alone. How long did you attend that group? Over a year. Every week. I never missed a meeting. How did that end? Did you just sort of get to the point where you were like, okay, I'm, I'm ready to move on. Thank you. Eventually, the other members of the group started to move and it just sort of dwindled. And by that point, I'd already spent hundreds of hours, not a thousand hours, talking to these men. And I'd started to become much more in touch with my emotions. One of the exercises they gave beginning members was to set a 15-minute alarm on your watch that goes off every 15 minutes. Then write down what you're feeling when it goes off. What did you discover through that process? Initially, and this is what most men discover. I knew I was feeling something, but I didn't know what to write down. I didn't know how to put it into words. And so I literally had to describe the sensations in my body without understanding what those emotions were. Did you begin to then learn to put name to them? I mean, was that, was that the idea that you would all become a little more aware? Yeah, I, I took my descriptions, like this is what I felt to these men, and they explained to me, oh, that's grief, or that's depression, or that's whatever. And so I started to put names. Was there any degree to which your earlier emotional research, I'm thinking of the summer of 300 movies, began to jibe or gel or support this? Was there any concordance there? That was recognizing emotions in other people with a slight bit of self-awareness about my own. But during this process, I learned a very nuanced view of precisely what it means to feel lots of different things. How is your control equals safety thing working during this phase? I let it go gradually. It took a while. Allowing more and more cases where you weren't entirely in control. Yeah, where I would just lose it in front of my friends. How scary was that? At the time when I lost control, not very, but after it was like, oh my God, now everyone's going to leave me. And it didn't happen. If anything, they felt closer to me. So did it work a little like aversion therapy on that particular axis where you ex you're exposed to a potential or an actual loss of control over and over again to the point where your brain says, maybe I'm still safe, even if I'm not in control? There was some of that, yeah, for sure. And it was also what I said earlier about you cry until you've cried out all the tears. I cried out all the tears. So it was putting in the time. Yeah. 
Interestingly, this process strikes me as very similar to what you used to do deliberately and consciously. You know, when you wanted to learn to write headlines, you wrote hundreds of headlines and thousands of headlines, bulk action so that you wouldn't be ignorant. And it sounds to me like this is a very unwelcome but cathartic or helpful version of that where you just had to keep going into lack of control over and over again and to learn that. Yeah, I also started experimenting with visualization exercises and breathing exercises. And in particular, what worked well for me was doing both at the same time. So doing these sort of like you do in yoga, different sorts of rhythmic breaths, and at the same time do visualizations. There's something about, for me, the rhythmic breath that very quickly results in a loss of control of my emotion. Oh, a loss of control. Yeah. You were using the breath to, I thought you were using the breath to feel control or to feel soothed, but it's the opposite. There's something, and it has to be physiological. When you breathe in certain ways, it's like your, your nervous system opens up and something releases. And doing that, I would just cry and breathe, cry and breathe, cry and breathe, and relive the memories over and over and over and over again. So the breathing gave you the capacity to fully experience without resistance. Yeah. It became a part of my schedule. Like it was on my schedule. Two hours a day, I had therapy. That therapy is breathing visualization. And I had a teacher for a while. Eventually, I mean, learning how to breathe is not that complicated. I didn't need that many classes, but I just started doing that every day for like two hours. Did that strategy teach you that you, it's taught you that you didn't need to be, be in control, that you could feel safe? Was that the end of the journey, that, that now that you knew how to not be in control, that you were able to move on and nothing else was necessary? I still didn't realize that it was about control. You could even say that exercise was a way of being in control of my trauma. Basically, rather than surrendering to control, which is what it sounds like a little bit, you were learning to master control. Control, control. Yeah. Was that an epiphany? Was that something that was obvious to you just after a year of exposure or or did somebody point it out? Again, it was David. I, I told David one day, I feel like I've plateaued. I made all of this progress. I feel much better, but I still feel my business isn't growing. I don't feel like I'm growing and I don't know what's missing. And he invited me into a very controversial type of therapy that he had been through himself and had a great experience. And at this point, I trusted him so much, I would have said yes to anything. Well, who knew that David Gonzalez was such a, a, a psychology guru? Did you know that about him? To Because I don't have that kind of knowledge of therapy and psychology. And I mean, he, he, that's two times that he's basically saving you. Did you know that going in? I'm not the only person he's done that for. He's done that for a lot of people. And David has uh, gradually become an expert on trauma of all kinds and all the different therapies, hundreds of therapies. Does he study them like you do? I mean, I don't want to broach David's confidence, but it sounds like he's got an encyclopedic knowledge. I think so, yeah. And he's one of the wisest, most emotionally sensitive people on the planet that I've met. And he invited me into this and basically just said, go sign up for this. It lasts six months. It's $5,000.
So you trusted David, but where was your your trust issues, your ability to trust other people before going into this? Just as bad as ever. The only reason why I trusted David is he had seen me and be with me at the absolute bottom and never abandoned me or judged me. So I trusted him at the time, probably more than anyone a lot. Did you see trust as a virtue that you would like to acquire? Or was it something that you could, you know, you trusted David and you didn't trust other people and that's just how it was? That's just how it was. Because I'm guessing the secret here is that trust is a piece that was missing. It was. So tell me about the therapy then. I mean, as much as you can. So this is a program called Ascension Leadership Academy, which is the next evolution of a, of another very controversial program called EST that was shut down by the government. I think after someone committed suicide. Not sure if that's quite right. I think it was something like that. I knew none of that when I signed up. And the way it works is they give you experiences to trigger your trauma. And they are experts at this. Those experiences they have refined for over 60 years. They're as close to magic as anything I've ever seen. Although there's nothing supernatural about it. So I know that there are some things that you can't reveal, kind of because it's a magician's secret sort of a thing. But what can you tell us? I can tell you some things that were exclusive to me. They required that I not go with my caregivers to any of their meetings. And let me interject for listeners, having spent a bunch of time with you, I don't know that people get this, and I don't want to speak for you, but so tell me if I'm wrong, but you have caregivers around 24-7, and it's things like your eyes are watering and you need your eyes wiped, or something itches, or you need water. I mean, it's constant, right? Yeah. And they wouldn't let you take anybody in with you. Right. How long of a period of time are we talking about? Was this like an eight-hour day and you did it for weeks on end? 12-hour days during the events. And then I was allowed to have my caregivers when I wasn't in an event. It was the first event, three or four days, I don't remember. Of 12-hour days? Yeah. What was your reaction when you learned this? At first, it was a hard note. And the owner of the company talked to me, or maybe it was one of their coaches, and they said, listen... We want you to feel safe, but your caregivers are not going to be opening themselves up emotionally about their trauma, and everyone else is in the room is, and it ruins the space for everyone. And it also makes other people wonder, can I really speak openly if there's this other person in the room who's not doing the same? And that made sense to me. And then they said, also, they can sit right outside the room, that can't be in the room with you. And your first weekend, David, the person I trusted most in the world, will be with you the whole time. Was he going through it again or was he functioning as sort of a a friend in the room? As a friend, because he had been through it. You said the first weekend. So does that mean there were times when David wasn't there? This is what I didn't know. I thought it was going to be the whole thing. It wasn't. They progressed this to next. It was choose a buddy. David's not here choose a buddy. And I chose a buddy. And they were with me for several days. The time after that, it was every day you choose a different buddy. So this was subsequent weekends, basically. There were breaks between these? Yeah. And did they know from the beginning that this was going to be a stepwise thing and maybe you wouldn't have agreed and that they were tricking you to some degree? I think so. 
Do you think that that uh, the reason they gave you that caregivers couldn't be in the room was the entire truth, or was it more that they knew that you had this control issue and were pulling another trick? I think they knew. So how did that go? I mean, I, I, I know David, you've already said enough good things about David. I, I'm sure that went fine when he was acting as your caregiver, but how did it go the first time that that wasn't the case? Imagine that there's a person in the tank of water and the water is over their head and you can't see them and they're interacting with you, telling you about themselves, but you can't see them. And then imagine that slowly the water drains to where you can see them. As they drained my control, it let out and made visible who I really was. Hmm. And who was that? An absolute control freak. The worst they had ever seen in 60 years. Is this the first time that you really confronted that? Yeah. So you had to learn to relinquish control. Did you have to learn to relinquish a promise of safety? They promised me I would be safe, but it was very difficult for me to believe them. I called David multiple times during the whole process. I was like, do you really trust these people? (laughs) (laughs) My caregivers were completely against it. My mother is completely against it because it also has the appearance of someone being brainwashed, giving up control. It wasn't just control. I think there were other things they would be okay with. These are very peripheral things. They will not give you a schedule for the event. There is one, but you can't have it. You ask them, when are we going to have a bathroom break? And they'll answer, when it's time for a bathroom break. Well, it occurs to me that there's safe and there's safe. So they may have been promising you that you would be like physically safe, that you would leave intact and you'd be fine. But I'm also going to guess that it did not feel psychologically safe on an instinct, amygdala sort of level. No. Physically, I was 100% safe the entire time. Emotionally, I became a complete mental case. So did you learn that there were other ways to be safe or did you have to kind of surrender to the fact that life isn't safe? I had to surrender and it took six months. So just in the interest of moving the story forward and just a little teaser to everybody that there's obviously a lot more here. Fast forward through those six months, you've completed it. You've learned some lessons. What was the final leg of that journey so far like? Eventually, I overcame my issues. I started to trust, not as something that was earned, but as a default. My starting position with everyone I came in contact with was, I trust you. Really? Yeah, that's where I am now. And so to put a cap on it, you're in a new relationship. So tell me about that after all of this trauma work and learning that safety isn't necessary at all times and that control certainly isn't necessary at all times. So I've relinquished control over just about every area of my life. And no, not to my therapist or to to people who do have my best interest at heart. I released control of my leaders in my company. And my company basically like doubled and I work half the hours or less. So I work less and make more purely as the result of trusting other people. It sounds crazy. That's literally all it was. At one point, there was even a conversation toward the end of the program. One of the coaches asked me, are you in the habit of hiring idiots? And I said, well, no, of course not. I said, then why don't you trust them to run your business? What about your relationship, your new one? The bridge to that was I gave up all of my safety in the U.S. I moved back to Mexico to build a new nursing team. Again, giving up safety. 
trusting other people. Mexico is less safe than the U.S. Also, I met a wonderful woman here. I asked her if I could say her name. She said I can. It's Nicole. I'm not going to say anything else, though. We fell in love, and I'm completely vulnerable with her. She's completely vulnerable with me. It is the healthiest relationship I've ever had. So as a closing note, you are, I believe, now 41. Happy birthday. Thank you. And what are you going to do with your next 41 years now that you've learned this lesson, Mr. Impossible? They say that none of us can heal completely from trauma. That could be true, but I'm going to challenge it and find out. The other thing, the most courageous act I can think of is not to do what I used to do and to say, I can endure anything, but I'll just turn off. You can endure any amount of pain if you're numb. Now, I still have to put my hand down the flame. I still have to endure the pain. I still have to go through things other people can't imagine. And I'll try things that other people have never done before. What I'm doing now, moving to another country to build a nursing team, to take care of me, to then travel all over the world. Don't know of anyone who's ever done that before. So I'm doing all of those things, but I'm doing it with my full self, with my emotions turned on, all the way on. All right, everybody. So that was the last episode in the Impossible Man podcast series. As I've mentioned, this is an overview. It was just meant to give you sort of a high-level view of what there is in this story. And as we go deeper and deeper, as we're writing the book together, the story just gets more and more nuanced. This is one of those cases where truth is stranger than fiction. Truth is more compelling, let's say, than fiction. So now that the podcast is over, it is not the end of the journey. Remember, the whole point was that John and I are writing this book together. Now, I don't know if it'll be called The Impossible Man or if we will call it something else. So just know that there will be progress updates over time. I have no idea how long it will take. That depends a lot on John and what he wants to do with the book. And the best way probably to keep in touch and to keep tabs on this entire thing is to go ahead and subscribe to either John's list or to my website, johnnybtruant.com, and that has the H in Johnny. And I will keep you up to date on this if you want to subscribe. Remember, as always, that you can find John on Twitter at at John Morrow, J-O-N-M-O-R-R-O-W. And you can always contact him at support at smartblogger.com as well. And any email sent to that address will be forwarded to him. So I want to thank you so much for being here for this series. It's been very, very interesting to record. And the reception, although it has been small, has been quite enthusiastic. And so thank you to all of you out there who have been following along. We will see you when we see you. And until then, thank you for listening to The Impossible Man. <laughs>